and welcome to Dot to Dot, the podcast that connects the dots on how to be you, with me, Fiona Merton, psychologist and author. Hello, so today I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Bavin Visavadia, who is a maxillofacial surgeon um, and a friend. So we're going to talk about Bavin, you, yourself, your journey, what got you to where you are today, um, which in and of itself is really fascinating. But there's a lot that I always reflect on about surgery and the fact that so much of what you do is just unseen. The results are seen. Um, Actually, the results are seen in, in some ways with the type of specialism you're in more than many other types. But the hours, literally hours upon hours that you spend in a theatre behind the scenes, people don't know what's going on. Um, And it's not really like Grey's Anatomy, much to, um, I'm sure, my daughter's disappointment, because obviously Grey's Anatomy is is the pinnacle of of medicine. Um, So it's really, really fabulous to have you here talking to me on the podcast rather than us having one of our lengthy chats that we tend to have um, without anyone listening in. Um, Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Uh, I'm really humbled. Uh, You know, we've had so many conversations uh, informally as friends and uh, I've invited you to to come and talk to uh, some of um, my colleagues and, um, and trainees and doctors from various backgrounds. And it's been really um, eye-opening for me, the journey um, of how I got to where I, where I am now and, and the influence that, that, that we can have just by having conversations. Um, so I, I'm a, a consultant, oral and maxillofacial surgeon. I, I'm now in my 17th year of consultant practice this week. Do you know what? I thought um, you were going to say I'm in my 70th year and I was going to say, Bavin, you're not. <laughs> 17th, Yeah. <laughs> And um, and it's 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 great because you know you, you we spend a lot of time reflecting back um, on on where how we've got or how I've got to where I where I am now and the changes the the, the environment that I've had to navigate uh, that we as doctors have to navigate um, through over the over the few years um, and the challenges particularly with the global pandemic. Um, and the challenges that we still continue to face uh, um, uh, at all levels. I mean, it's immense. And I think it's it's moved from clapping for NHS once a week to being, well, the NHS is totally overwhelmed, isn't it? And that's, that's it's heartbreaking to see because of the goodwill and the skill and the post-sociality of so many people who work within the system and um, for whatever reason it's not fairly rewarded and people are on their knees in terms yeah. of where they've got to now um, and I mean I, I've, I've had conversation with a few people about how it's in some ways it's worse now than even during the height of the pandemic because mm. of the relentlessness of it for for people who work in these roles yeah absolutely i mean um the pandemic was um a a real challenge um it challenged um, doctors and nurses on all fronts um highly emotive and it gave us an opportunity to to sit and talk as well as everything going on in the emergency on the emergency side of things it gave us um a chance to sit and talk, have meetings outside of normal hours, have virtual meetings to to plan, to strategize, to see how how we're going to get through this. Um, and we're, we're still not there. I mean, we've still got a, a lot of work to do. We're still dealing with huge backlogs. And um, it's, it's I'm pleased to be in, in, in an environment where I, I can give some oversight, um, look at um, the various aspects of, of care that the patients. Uh, need patients still need we look at the the, the waiting lists currently um, over seven million are waiting for diagnostics and treatment um, so really depressing figures but at least there are there are um, dedicated 
groups of doctors and nurses and, and allied health professionals who are very keen to to make things work and also managers as well and I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of people um, in my in my various roles um, to try and deliver a, a way forward um, so I know some parts of the country are really um, um, still poor badly affected the, the resources are uh, are scant um, they're still dealing with winter crises as well as the um, onslaught of, of COVID and, and flu, etc., um, and um, and others are. We've got some some way forward. Um, we've made some way forward, and we're able to deliver. So we are making some impact. But it's 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 uh, again the health service is is a political football. It, it always will be, and um, we've got to navigate our um, services, our care through that. And of course, um, another member of your household, being your lovely wife, Madonna, is a GP. So seeing a different side of the same system. And she works so hard, doesn't she? I mean, she, every yeah, weekend absolutely. she has work that's coming home to be yeah. done outside of those hours that we see the GPs being in the surgery. But I think we don't always fully understand how much there is to do beyond those hours where yeah. they're actually seeing patients face to face as well yeah. absolutely and it's, it's it's again about um, gps trying to work um, collaboratively so the practices are, are, are bigger now you know, sometimes 18 to 20000 patients registered in in, a, in almost like a health campus isn't it in a gp practice and you've got to have this um, the, these um, avenues of communication um, open between the partners, between the, the the doctors, and also have the hours to be able to to deliver that clinical work. Um, and on top of that, um, the vaccination program, which uh, was was crucial, um, it had to be delivered by the GPs, and it was delivered very effectively by them. So, uh, yeah, admirable the, the amount of uh, work that goes in and the work that uh, that comes home, the laptops on, and 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 still has to, has to be done. But it's it's um, I think things are a little little better now. Um, and um, in terms of um, patients getting to see their GPs, it is variable around the country, I know. Um, and um, where, where where they can, they will. And they're, again, um, uh, just um, under immense stress. It's it's hard. It's And also when you think about and, and come, bring it back to you and thinking about why people get into medicine. And I know there's obviously with some there's uh there's an expectation from family members but even then the 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 main driver has to be a desire to help yeah bottom line yeah has to be it's got to come from within some describe it as a calling um and others fall into it um, they look at the um, the work that their parents do, and they, and they get enthused, and um, and others will make an an, uh, an educated decision, having done a degree um, and coming as mature um, graduates. Um, so it, it it's a. I think it's about understanding where where this course of study is going to take them, um, and it's so difficult to as a surgeon to um, educate or, or, or develop the grassroots of surgery, which of course I'm quite biased. I want more surgeons. Uh, we, we're going to need them in the future. We're going to need them now. Um, and to try and influence and to try and um, map out a career pathway that, that a young um, student, a school, a school student is going to see as, yeah, this is, this is the way forward. This is something I could really do. Um, but certainly, the 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 the, um, the the young people who I meet are just uh, phenomenal. When they when they um, when you you talk to them, they have done the reading. When they're interested, when they come for work experience, they are um, engaged. And you can see those that uh, will go on and, and do well are those who will who who listen, who maintain uh, eye contact, who have the communication skills and uh, who ask the questions and that's really inspiring for me and that at every level even my trainees uh, if if um if there's a lack of engagement i'm quite quick to to pick up on it and and try and find out what the issues are so that we can get them back on on, on the right track as well and i think that's absolutely critical is this piece around understanding if 
someone is disengaged, why? And obviously yeah. there's all the systemic things that we, we've already talked about that can be incredibly wearing, but are there other things? And that's something that, I mean, having grown up with a stepfather who's a doctor, I don't think, and then having uh, sort of pursued the profession I have, it, it's not part of the training in the same way as it would be if you're a leader in an organisation, a, a private sector organisation, to say, mm. how do you spot that? How do you notice what is or isn't motivating someone? What what means that they're engaged or disengaged? How do you have the conversation that then opens that up in an honest way and allows you to help that person explore? Yeah. They're not things that you can just do. They're things you have to learn to do. Absolutely. Um, there, there's more structure um, in um, even, even for us as, as doctors to to be able to teach in and pick up the skills that our our, our educationist um, colleagues have. So there are there are you know there are postgraduate courses that we would do to to be able to master the the art of teaching. Not everyone can teach. I think it's a duty for doctors to teach, um, but not everyone can. And I'm sure there's something that we can always impart uh, to an individual. Um, and I think it's about picking up the well, the hard skills. Have they got the knowledge? Um, you know, you ask the direct questions. You can ask the open questions, and then it's the softer skills, which are like, well, okay, what would you do if um, if you had to break bad news to a patient? You know, someone who who you've got the biopsy result in in your hand, and you've got to break that news to them. And that's when I think um, you can see the the clockwork behind the eyes working away. You can see that. They're, uh, they, they look up and then they go, right, okay, um, this is what I'd do. And um, there's a specific way of, of breaking that news and go, almost like holding the patient's hand, but, but you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a clinical scenario and guiding them through that uh, pathway. I remember when I had to do that for the, for the first time and I had two very eminent colleagues watching over me. And um, and they actually, I, I was first. I felt privileged that they could trust me to do that. Um, and secondly, of course, I knew the patient. I could look at you know, develop my skills, sit at eye level, um, have the tone of voice that I that I have, um, and break the news to them gently and schematically, systematically, so that they, we know where it's going to go to and anticipate their questions. And then just have a pause and reflect and and just go go through the the uh, discussion that's going to that's going to follow allow them some time to absorb that information that you know uh, it may be that they they break down in tears it may be that they get angry the grief responses uh, the variations are, are immense and only through experience can we get better and better at that so um it was that particular environment in a, in a, in, a, in a clinic where with everyone sitting around and me as the registrar being watched by the team, uh, guided through, um, that actually helped shape the way I do things. And there's, there's a reason we do things the way we do. And some people do, do it well, others, and some people don't do it well. And, and it's, it's, it needs to be picked up on. The good thing is that we've got a team and a team that has specialist nurses, um, and everyone has an equal voice. So if, if, they can pick up that maybe I'm not saying something in in in, in a in, in an understandable way that they can chip in, and it's it's that sort of interaction between us and the patient that makes it much better consultation and a much better experience. Um, so the the whole team are involved in in uh, in, the, in that patient's journey. But you know you know that that's not always the case because there is no. um, a degree of arrogance with some surgeons potentially um as a protective mechanism uh potentially as uh you know i could i could talk about it from a psychological perspective and have they been so focused on knowledge and information and results that they haven't refined those softer skills but it you you know, we've been in scenarios where we, 
we've been speaking to colleagues of yours where there's mm. been uh, one particular gentleman I can think of who's uh, human factors and looking at yeah. how do you flatten that hierarchy within an environment with surgeons because there are some exceptional human beings in surgery, no doubt, whether, you know, and, and no one's perfect, but there is that tendency for, not in all and not in a majority, but in there is it a pocket in the same way as you would say with CEOs and founders of yeah. more narcissistic behaviour where it puts people in a position where they're fearful to actually say mm. what they see. Yeah, absolutely. And and those the dynamics that that leads to in, in, in the operating theatre, for example, um, we, we've really tackled that head on. I mean, human factors are so important. You asked me, how, how, how could I, um, how can I operate for so long? How can I operate for, you know, do a 12 hour operation um, and, um, and, or, or longer uh, with the team? And um, time and time again, it's, it's actually about making sure you are the right team, making sure we look at who's there, who turns up on the day, um, everyone, we have, we have a checklist, um, and that checklist is important. We have a, a team brief. Everyone introduces themselves, first names. You know, it's, 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 it's breaking down barriers. So that when I um, look at the uh, student um, assistant, uh, nursing assistant, uh, you know, and they, they, and I say, you know, we, we have a, a, a rapport, or the senior uh, anaesthetist, we have, you know, they know how I've, I've worked for years. The senior sister, they, she knows how, how I've worked for years. Um, and at, at any point, if there's something that, that's felt that it's not right, something's not going well, they have the freedom to be able to speak and say, yeah, that's, um, can, I just, can I just ask you something? Can I just stop you there? Um, and when they, it very rarely happens, of course, but when it does happen, it's fantastic because the first thing I do is say, well, thank you so much for, um, you know, maybe I picked up a wrong instrument or something. It's something that is that's not it's, it's not critical, but it's just something that they've noticed, and they felt that they they were in an environment where they could tell me that, and um, and that they're contributing to that patient's care. So so it's and that's to be encouraged. So um, breaking down barriers, um, having the uh, the almost a first name term that's really really been uh, quite useful. Um, in, in, in these sorts of scenarios. And also, um, you know, we're all looking after the patient, every single aspect. So we do a checklist before. Uh, if there's a change of team members, if someone goes on a break, if someone comes back, there's supposed to be another, another uh, stop and, and a pause and we just uh, check again, make sure that everyone's, everyone's too happy. At, uh, at the end of the procedure, we do a, a checklist again, everything gone the right way, um, everything we wanted to do, appropriately noted, um, every, all the labelling of the counts, and then at the very end, um, uh, a debrief. So these structures are in place and it's taken us a while to, to get there so that we can um, build our team and talk and make sure that we're not um, bringing the patient to any harm because that's the most important person in the room is the patient. And we all have a duty uh, to make sure that these are, these that things are done so that we can actually give them the best outcome. Um, of course, there's always you know, checking the the procedure, checking the, the the instruments, and that's all done. Sometimes it's done the, the night before, the day before. Um, if it's a very complex piece of kit, it's ordered in. So you know, we we have our managers, our our procurement, so that it's 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 a big deal. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's a particularly big. <laughs> it's. The thing that I'm amazed at, having seen pictures of the surgery that you carry out, is the minute detail and complexity. And when it comes to someone's face, if you get something just a tiny bit wrong, it notices. Or if something is just slightly misaligned, just by millimetres, it notices. Not just to that person, but by other people, yeah. because... That's where our vision is the whole time. That's how we, you know, a big part of how we communicate is looking at someone else's face. Yeah, and the true. surgeries that you do, so there was one in particular that we we actually presented together uh, somewhere. <laughs> and um, 
you started off with with pictures from that surgery and it was a woman who had a very big uh, cancerous yeah uh tumor in her i'm, I'm not in the I, jaw, yeah. yeah and yeah. It, it was just this massive massive lump on her jaw and the side of her face and i probably got the the proximity bit wrong but you'll remember and then afterwards once you've done the surgery you almost couldn't see that you'd done that yeah. surgery and that takes immense skill but it also it's one of these examples of a 12 hour plus operation yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely absolutely so, uh, so we we started from from what what the pathology is if the pathology is we're guided by that if there is a tumor in the in the top jaw the lower jaw we it's all mapped out scanned biopsied everything is staged so there's a good few weeks of work that's gone in to know exactly the state of the um, patient's condition and the state of the stage of that tumor before we then embark upon a treatment plan and then that treatment plan would mean access how do we get into the face and take the take the cancer out and put everything back together reconstruct the areas and then zip everything back up seamlessly and that's that's um these skills come from our training in facial trauma so um from even from harold gillies in 1914 and and war injuries to mackindo in second world war and um, and the maxillofacial surgeons developing from dentists um, to managing facial trauma by putting the teeth where they should go, and then the jaw bones added on top so they 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 would be in the in the right position. So picking up those sorts of skills and applying the skills of reconstruction where we borrow tissue from another part of the body. That particular case you saw uh, had um, the uh, upper jaw reconstructed with um, bone from her uh, leg, which was the fibula. And so the bone formed the structure of the, the facial skeleton, the soft tissue, the, the, the skin component, and a little bit of muscle uh, helped to fill in the soft tissues and seal off the, the hole in the palate and the, and the skull base. And then the um, blood vessels from there were joined to the um, blood vessels in the neck, one to the artery and one to the vein. So it's a living reconstruction. In order to get there, and, and I remember the case very well, of course, it's we had to um, open up the lower jaw and split the lower jaw like like you would a uh, like a trapdoor, open up, and then put everything back together with very tiny titanium mini plates and screws. And so that takes a, a fair bit of planning. And now that we've got three um, D software that we can manipulate, we can map out the the cheek and the and the and the bone from the the other side the the good side and then uh, design our templates if we need to our cutting guides and uh, it actually means that I can spend a couple of hours with a bioengineer and design the exact cuts that I need to make in order to take the cancer out safely and then um design the reconstruction so shaping a, a straight piece of bone from the leg into a curved three-dimensional reconstruction of one of the most complex bones, which is the maxilla, um, and, uh, and, and secure it in safely. Um, that, so that takes a, a, lot of, a lot of thought. And this isn't done just by myself. We always work in pairs. So there's always two, two consultants. Um, and we're teamed up, we're buddied up. And my buddy, I've, I've worked with him for over 17 years. And it's, uh, and it's, uh, it's a privilege to, to, to work with Someone like Mick, Mick Gilhuli, who's, who's a good colleague and friend, um, who has just years of experience. And um, the two of us have really done some of the most complex um, work. Um, and it's been great because we can innovate and we can, we can move things that little bit further forward. Um, if we look at um, one of the most complex operations, which was um, re reconstructing a nose, you think, well, okay, the nose, well, the nose is the face. It's the, it's the, you know, people are concerned about little hump deformity or a little deviation of the septum. I had a patient who, who had um, a, a cancer of the nose. And now throughout my training, I've always had an interest in, in getting the nasal reconstruction right. And this patient said, well, 
I've read about you, and I think you can make me a new nose. He was, was an engineer as well, so I remember very well. And he said, um, I've got this uh, cancer. Uh, he had a cancer of the nose. We all planned, and we designed an operation, and that worked beautifully. So when he woke up, he had a new nose. Um, and we, we made the inner structure from tissue from his forearm, and then the superstructure from his forehead, and some cartilage from the ear cartilages. And it sounds horrendous. But he actually, you could be sitting next to him and you wouldn't really notice. It's absolutely incredible. So it was really, but, but, you know, again, those skills come from, and those techniques come from uh, people like Harold Gillies, who, who, in the First World War, shrapnel injuries to the, uh, to the nose. And he designed, you know, he would use the, the forehead. Uh, In fact, the forehead flap has been used since 600 BC, um, by an Indian surgeon, um, Shusrata. Um, uh, and it, this is um, well documented, but Gillies took that technique and um, and uh, helped to rebuild noses. And, and there's some fantastic examples of his of his work at uh, uh, Sidcup. Um, and then um, I just I used the free flap, borrowing tissue from the forearm, um, a little strut of bone from the uh, radius, and making a, making a, a, a the, the whole pyramid of the nose, and then borrowing the forehead idea and and building it building it from there and that's that's worked really quite well it's been um it's been a very interesting um journey for for me uh, and it's been a, su- a superb um uh, journey for for some of the patients who are affected by this horrendous cancer because it's a lot of the time these aren't aren't dealt with uh, as well as we would expect them to be which then ends up with uh well if it's if it's not death it it's deformity isn't it really yeah. Yeah. um yeah. but but I mean, I, I I always just find it mind blowing, and and I smiled when you you mentioned that six hundred BC, just because you'd mentioned that before, and at the time I was like, wow, that's just incredible. Um, but even over the last seventeen years, something has progressed. Well, not something; it's something that's progressed so far because of the way in which technology has. Uh, brought us forward with 3D yes. uh, imaging and what have you. But if you think about you for a moment, because uh, I'm interested in you, and I'm sure our listeners will be as well. What, if you can put it into words, which you might not be able to, but what would you say is your core driver? So what, well, I mean, if we start with how did you end up doing what you do hmm. um i mean i think my, my story is is uh, is it starts off when, when i started dentistry i never wanted to do medicine it was it was always it was sold to me as being too just too long a uh, a career pathway and i started i started as a dentist at king's and in my very first year um very sadly um my sister died from mouth cancer and she was 28 and i was 18 and that really um, shook my world. So it, from that experience, just not knowing, not even, no, you know, it wasn't even talked about in the family. Um, it just, just um, taboo. You just, you just wouldn't, the, the C word is never mentioned. And until it was too late. And I remember coming home from uni um, and someone saying, oh, she, uh, you know, by the way, she's, uh, she's terminal. And um, well, she's, she's, uh, I've just talked to her. What do you mean she's terminal? Um, and um, having to be, ex- having to have that explained to me um, by my uh, one of my sisters, and it was just very, very, just heartbreaking. But it led me on a uh, on a journey to find out. Well, 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 how did how did she get cancer? How did she? What what happened? You know what's what was going on? And because I, I was learning about the mouth, you know, and I met a a superb um, consultant who, who became my my role model, mentor, coach, but old, and that was John Langdon. And John um, was professor of um, uh, maxillofacial surgery at King's. And he came and gave us a talk on, on how to manage mouth cancer and putting together the anatomy that we were learning uh, in our first year with the surgery that he was doing. And it was the most fascinating lecture. I couldn't believe that here was a man who was he was dentally qualified, and 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 he he then he had done medicine as well, of course. But but he was 
talking to us and and, and he was just 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 charming and I got to know John very well and he's still a very good friend uh, and uh, I'm honored to have, have him as one of my one of my friends um that he he trained me he he uh, I, I worked with him as a as a registrar and I did a lot of my um uh, training with him and we would sit and talk and he had the empathy to to talk to me he had the um the charm to be able to sit sit me down and say actually you know this is where you are now in your life this is what this is what's going to happen to your sister um and um if i needed to to talk to anyone it was it was great to have that that's that support and of course so, so as as i went through um um dental school i was I had a a surgical leaning anyway and um wherever i had a chance i would be taking teeth out to the, in the ground floor of the dental school and um i would try and get an extra session in just to just to practice my surgical skills it was great and then uh, um eventually fell into working in a in in a hospital environment and there was no stopping me it was uh, it was it was great because uh, you just get uh, more and more encouragement and i think it, it's structured in a way that you would sit an exam which would give you that specialist knowledge um that um would put you above the the, the general knowledge that I'd already amassed and then all of a sudden you're talking to peers and you're reading papers and and it's just so exciting because that it's that, it's that age and there had to come a time when I had to, had to make a decision on whether I go to medical school or not and i know it sounds tragic but actually my mother died of mouth cancer and that uh was a very um difficult time because she wasn't going to have any surgery so she went through a very uh traumatic um death um there was a lot of uh, um worry about what would happen if she had surgery and again you know uh, my uh colleague and mentor john um brought every member of my family and my family isn't small it's huge um every member of family in to talk to them say please get your mother to have something done and in, in fact you went on had radiotherapy and and it, it wasn't enough so as sad as it may be i learned a lot i grew up a lot and um an opportunity arose for me to go to medical school and become the surgeon um and i i jumped at it and it was a great time for me to have a complete change of scene uh, be surrounded by people who are much younger than me um live my life a little bit and also reflect and and move things forward and i always went to went through medical school keeping my um eyes open for anything other than maxillofacial surgery because i knew what it what it involved um but it, i kept on being drawn back to the wonders of of what we could do and how we could uh, rebuild lives rebuild um, um patients and you know i, I ended up in a in uh, as a consultant in harrow which is a, a a large asian population the risk factors for mouth cancer uh, chewing tobacco chewing um a betel nut which is what caused the changes in in uh, my uh, sister's mouth and my mother's mouth betel nut is a widely available in uh, in um the asian population and uh, east africa and also in india uh, but tobacco and um uh, alcohol also uh, are risk factors but uh, so you know working in an area which is which has got a huge problem with mouth cancer in fact we we have never been busier in this current time i'm not, uh, we are just so so busy with with the number of cases that are coming through but it's it was an opportunity to to build a build a unit and we built a unit um 17 years ago in the in northwest london and it's one which has an excellent uh, reputation um we have been its clinical lead i've been a clinical director there uh, and i work with the college of surgeons uh, through there as well and it's um and it's great that i've got a great um um a base and um it's a family of of uh, uh consultant colleagues and we're all friends as well so it's actually it's it's a lot of good has come out of those experiences um that I, that i had when i was younger and and now i have such a deep understanding of of a patient's journey um and the experiences that they will go through that it it almost comes naturally to to have that conversation um um i like to give the the 
um, this, the honest, uh, frank uh, opinion. Um, and a lot of my patients prefer that. Of course, there's some who will be frightened and run away, but they do come back and we do get them through to treatment. We can't cure everybody, but the ones who, who we can cure, we'll do to the best of our ability. And it's great. Um, I'm just, it's a privilege to have, have the colleagues I have with me and uh, the Max, Max, Max Fax team at Northwick Park is, um, has got an outstanding reputation. Um, and uh, we're really um, you know, it's, it, it, we're blessed that actually um, the, the people we work with, the hospital, the, the managers, everyone are really um, um, positive and pushing, pushing us to, to do the best we can. That's, it's, it's cruel to have lost your sister when you were so young and it's cruel when it's something that's so close to what you were starting to study anyway before even realising um, and then to lose your mother of the same thing is really, really hard. And I think that has to build a level of understanding and empathy that is very difficult to replicate without having had those experiences. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, and, certainly, and I think um, it's um, about holding that patient's hand through that, through what they're going to go through. Um, we do have a holistic approach to to um, providing cancer care. It's it's so important that we get it right. Not everyone wants to go through major surgery. Not everyone wants to go through radiotherapy. Some people have made the decision that they want to live with their disease. But the advancements we've had, it's, it's phenomenal in terms of surgical skills, the diagnostic tools we've got, the teams who are specialising. Um, we have a multidisciplinary team meeting every week and it is um, to discuss every single patient who is going, going down this cancer journey. And the um, success stories are great. And then even if something comes back, the dreaded uh, recurrence, um, we have um, a, a developing field in immunotherapy, which um, is targeting um, drugs to mark up cancer cells so that the body can deal with them through the immune system. And uh, through COVID, I, I remember a, a patient who I, I actually we'd lost contact. I'd lost contact with. I thought that they were in, they were they were um, shielding, and uh, in fact may have succumbed through through this horrendous disease. And actually through immunotherapy, they were presented to my clinic, and I was just so so pleased to see them um, because they they're still alive and keeping keeping um, patients alive that much longer. So it is very interesting how how things are developing and in our network we have a, a great group of young enthusiastic oncologists who you know are, are very well read who attend the conferences will enter patients into trials and then we have links as well so we have links with with some of the biggest cancer units uh, in the country so so that we, we are you know keeping things current and this is the nhs and i'm thinking well actually this is actually pretty good what we can do mm. Yeah, the NHS is uh, it's an incredible system. It's um, it's 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 uh, sorry. I'm really struck. Still, I know you've told me before, but I'm still really struck by that experience, which is so tough, and you must, to some extent, be reminded of it time and time and time again when you see other people coming through your door. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, that that's obviously been a core, core driver. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, something else I see in you a lot, I see a lot of, and we talk about a lot, is this, it is referring back to something you said earlier, which we all have a responsibility to teach. And what I found really interesting when I was researching mirror thinking, um, was you can look into all fields and there is not a single field that relies upon the concept of mentoring 
and teaching as much, I would yeah. say, as medicine. Well, there's definitely not as much research in any other area. Um, and that element is not just the cognitive skills and the analytical abilities and the the knowledge. It's actually the soft skills as well that are passed on through that mentoring. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we've talked a lot about, the people that you've mentored, the people that you've encouraged. And you have a real passion for for that. It's not a duty, I would say. It's a passion, you know. I'm, I'm sure there are some people it feels more duty-bound, but it's definitely yeah, yeah. for you something that um, really, really deeply matters. Oh, it does. It's, it's, it's just so important. I mean... There's, I think there's, there's nothing more satisfying than having someone you've trained come through, do an operation the way you do it, the way I do it, and to go through the patient's journey with them and the patient coming back to me saying, you know, your registrar is fantastic. And they really have bonded with them. And you can you can see that actually they, they, they get a lot out of that and, and give, them the, give them the freedom to to express themselves to go and because we call them junior doctors but these guys have done, guys and girls have done dentistry you know to the highest highest level medicine to the highest level their exams they are rigorously assessed and we call them junior doctors but they are very close to becoming consultants and um it's a real privilege to work with them um, and I prepare them for their exams, I pre- you know, the, the journeys that they go through with the, with the patients, I get them to reflect on them. And we have an, like an, an open-door approach. So they can, they can contact me any time they want to. Um, during COVID, it was a matter of, uh, let's have a Zoom meeting or something, just to just have a, a, a chat. And half an hour, from, from my point of view, is, is, is really well invested in, in just having, an, having a conversation because I'm developing human being developing the 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 skills um that they will use in their practice and carry them forward and that's part of a legacy i guess it's not i don't want to get too too attached to that sort of title but but i think that's part of my duty because i can and i've done it for 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 a long time i was a lead trainer in the unit i've um you know been an external uh, for quality assurance for the for the college as well uh, for, for many years and it's you, you see that when we do have uh, an insight into the the whole individual, and we have to look at every every surgeon individually, look at what they're going through. Some are less than full time, so part time. Some are um, you know, getting married, having children. Uh, some are full time, dedicated, but they want to go off into research. Every single thing is has to be looked at, and if we can make it work then uh, and they've got support from someone like me then um that's great because it means that we're advancing um the, the specialty we're advancing research and we're encouraging people drawing people to the that they can stay and remain in the specialty at the moment the attrition rates are quite high in surgery there are lots of attractions in, in terms of going off into the pharmaceutical industry or or leaving uh, completely going into the city, or um, or leaving the country, um, because of the uh, of the, pro- the problems in the in the NHS. Um, so, if we can do something that can try and make that journey um, more acceptable, um, help give them some insight. It's what they don't know, really. Give them some insight into into what is possible, and then um, support them. The, the new consultant of today is not the consultant I started off when I, when I was started off at seventeen years ago. I had over a hundred hours a week sometimes of of training, of work, one in three on call, uh, moving to one in five, and then you know big long lists twice a week, sometimes three times a week, as well as trauma. So it's about getting them, making them safe, giving them the environment in which they can train, and. Uh, adapting our uh, our training pathway so that we can actually make it more inclusive and uh, talking to them making you know it, they have lots of ideas what's what could be better we could design apps we could be you know look at um, uh, um, online learning we could look at 
um, sending them on courses internationally, nationally, you know, so that we can um, just make sure that they have a good time doing their training. One of the best times is, is, is training as a registrar because you have the freedom to express yourself. It's a, it's a protective environment, but it works both ways. Uh, you've got to, you know, you're also being monitored to see how good a consultant you are. And that's how rigorous uh, surgical training is. Mm. It, it, it really is. I mean, it's just immense <laughs> the number of years you have to put in. to, And then it doesn't stop. There's still exams to do once you're, once you're trained or qualified or yeah. um and I guess on the one hand that's actually what life should be about is continuing to learn and grow but on the other hand it's it can probably sometimes feel like it's just another pressure on top of all the other pressures yes. that are there yeah yeah absolutely and um you know we can talk a little bit about burnout and 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 where we've seen colleagues just say particularly you know, the pandemic was just something that really did affect um, the um, resilience, the the thought processes, the the coping mechanisms for 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 individuals who were pre-COVID were some of the strongest um, uh, colleagues I've come across, and it really has tested people. Um, and the stories that come from from uh, doctors' experiences. Uh, uh, are something that we should we should be learning from um you know we've had dentists who would be working in a hospital expecting to be in a really protective environment next thing they're nursing in intensive care and well what happened what happened there or, or nurses who were who were supposed to be in outpatients next thing they're you know turning patients in in itu uh, or looking after uh, patients on 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 nursing wards so the, the experiences from from uh, from that I think there's a lot to lot to learn, um, and I hope that you know there, there are there are collectors of stories of people people that do talk. I hope they do have that ability to 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 talk things through. Um, what's good is in, in in quite a few of the units the well being has really been stepped up, uh, and so there is access. It's not enough, but there is access for um, for um, well for um, people to go and talk. And get some uh, psychological support, um, but I think burnout is burnout is burnout, and when it hits you, it's um, it's it's like a ton of bricks, I think, and it's um, uh, all encompassing. It is very very um, uh, important that we we try and um, find find the, the the root source of that, and actually just try and get get on top of mm. that. And I think to an extent, mm-hmm. it comes back down to that support piece. Um, that social support component is so core and you spoke about earlier in your career your mentor your role model being you used the word support and you've used that word when you've talked about the junior doctors and what you do with them is support and actually as humans we should be supporting one another but when life become so overwhelmed by the systems and processes and protocols and bureaucracies and barriers that get in the way it can be difficult yeah. for us to even consider supporting yeah. ourselves let alone other people yeah yeah it's uh, exactly it, it, it is difficult and you know we don't always get it right um and we, you know, big organizations don't always get it right and there's lots of there's lots of changes that are, that are afoot at the moment as we organise our, our, our healthcare services, um, and it's an opportunity to try and get things right, because with um, just uh, just uh, what was used as um, a, um, a a tool, a, the appraisal mechanism, for example, is used as a, as a mechanism to to to. Uh, find out the, the the needs of that individual, and every doctor should have an appraisal. Um, so it's a one to one conversation, looking at their uh, practice annually, and uh, an opportunity to for them to develop themselves as well, and also an opportunity to find out if there are any problems. And that came about as a result of uh, some serious medical scandals um, in the past, and um, it was felt that doctors weren't checked rigorously enough. The appraisal mechanism, I've found it to be a fantastic uh, tool for me to have 
some dedicated conversations with my appraisees who are actually superb consultants um, and to have the appraisal paperwork done no problem and actually extend the conversation to as long as they want to take and 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 talk about uh, how they want to develop themselves and whether i can help them to to get to where they want to get to so it's all of a sudden become a a coaching uh, session but actually it's it's part of in, in a formal mechanism but we're we're talking about um uh, avenues that they want to explore and uh, and uh, i think we've had some really good successes just out of that approach um i haven't formalized it but it's just a matter of time before we i think incorporate that into our our, our standard appraisals if you talk to most people the appraisals are sometimes a little bit rushed but um the gps do it very well they they spend a lot of time doing their portfolios and uh, and uh, and and going through these you know um but uh, in the hospital setting it's uh, certainly something that i think we can open up that little bit more and uh, and and get the get the best out of uh, our colleagues oh, well there's lots i would still like to explore uh, what's going on what's going through your head during those surgeries that maybe we need to do another one but i'm also conscious that you have um important things to do like saving people's lives um, and training the next generation of doctors um so a massive 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 thank you for coming on and talking i know that people will find it fascinating i i am uh preempting that people will want to hear more as well because there is there is so much more to hear but i really appreciate you um giving up an hour of your time to speak to people on the podcast oh thank you thank you so much it's been it's been a real pleasure thanks to my guest thanks to you for listening if you want to find out more about me and my work go to fionamurden.com or my social media handle is also fionamurden if you enjoyed this please do subscribe review and tell your friends it'd be a massive help but for now Goodbye and I hope you have a great week.